Welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. This is Kathy. I'm your host. And I'm coming to you from my kitchen again since I have to get my my office set back up because of the new equipment. I have to get everything reconfigured. I know my partner will be thrilled about that. I don't know how everybody else's weekend was, but we celebrated our third Christmas. And uh, third or second I can't even remember at this point. I don't know how everybody else is, but split families and things like that, getting everything together and making sure everybody's doing whatever. It gets to be a blur after a certain point, but I do believe we're done at this point. Um, But celebrating birthdays, holidays, and uh, making sure everything's together, and then now on to New Year's. I mean, that's, that's, that's the big one. I just uploaded the episode nine for New Year's traditions. That was just a little fun one for, you know, little things going on that people do throughout the world, things like that, like eating grapes, 12 grapes for every stroke of the clock, little simple things. And That one there will finish out for 2019. Hopefully everything can get back on track, be a little bit normal, whatever normal means. And that way we can get back into our murder mysteries and little lores or anything like that, which if anybody knows of any cases or anything like that in their local area and they would like to talk about them, please, by all means, send me a message and I'll try and do my best to look into them and we'll put them on the podcast with a little shout out, but a little housekeeping, obviously podbean.com is where we are. Also Facebook. It is all things eerie, eerie with three E's. If you would like to leave us a message, please, by all means, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we are also on Spotify and Twitter, uh, more so on Facebook. I really got to get on Twitter and just really just force myself to do that one and get out there and start posting some things. I am not one for pictures. I never have been, but I will force myself to do things for, uh, out, you know, when I'm out doing things, I actually do do things. I don't just stay home. I do prefer to stay home. I am more of a homebody, but that was, that's more of a me thing than, than actually not doing things. Um, we have our first listener from Kentucky. We do have a lot of folks from Ohio. Thank you so much. I used to live in Ohio for a very, very long time. Thank you for my Ohio friends. Uh, a lot of folks from uh, from California also. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And some folks from Michigan. Thank you, thank you. I know one of them was my stepson while he was up there. I shouldn't say stepson. He is my son. He was my easiest birth ever and my easiest child. Cannot say that enough. I love him dearly. And um, and And again, our Ontario listener. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Love our listeners. But we're going to jump into our first case of the year, and that is Janine Kirk. The research on this wasn't as as much, which I'm surprised, 
with as much information as you can get out there, getting online for newspaper clippings and things of that nature. Everybody wants you to pay for things anymore and uh, getting down to Blasco Library. And if you've anybody from Erie knows any any of the libraries, Blasco Library is the biggest one that you want to go to where they keep all the archives. And I just have not made it down there. I am just trying to get back into what is considered my normal. Everybody has their own what they consider normal. And hopefully I can get down there and start start getting the books out and things of that nature for, for myself. I can order up here. Uh, I don't actually have to go down to Blasco. I can go to my local library and order the books and have them shipped up. Um, for the periodicals that you can't do. So I actually have to haul my ass down there and, and do the research down there. Um, but back to Janine Kirk, um, I mean, this is a typical situation of domestic violence gone horribly wrong. And, and yes, this is going to go into domestic violence into the, into what the statistics say, but we're going to talk about the statistics of then versus now. And when I talk about domestic violence, it goes both ways. It used to be funny when you would see a wife yelling at a husband, but it's not. If you see a wife hitting a husband, that's domestic violence. With gay couples, domestic violence. And it's more so in that you know, LGBTQ society because they got brushed off for years because it was, eh, they're gay. You know, that's just their attitude. That's just them being sassy. No, domestic violence is domestic violence. Everybody goes through it at some point in time. I shouldn't say everybody goes through it, but somebody knows somebody who knows somebody or they themselves have gone through it. I, I hate to, to think that my girls have gone through it. I know one of them has, I know myself, I have been a victim of domestic violence. It is not okay. It, you cannot brush it off. You cannot think, oh, well, he's not going to do it again. If they do it once, they're going to do it again. If it's just yelling it's still not okay. That's emotional abuse. Um, there is a new type of abuse that they are trying to get um, to be, it's called coercive behavior, uh, coercive uh, abuse. And what that is, is, um, and, and it is illegal in um, countries like the UK. And what it is, is when that spouse controls you through your finances, through where you can go, whom you can see, how you can dress, those types of behavior. If they can prove, and, and, and I mean, there's a whole list, and I mean, those aren't just the only ones. If they can find at least a couple of them, they can charge that person. And, and it goes along the lines of like the stalking laws in the UK. And they're trying to get that to come over to the US. And I think it's a very, very good idea because there are women that are out there that can't even look 
at another person without the fear of getting into an argument or being slapped or being talked down to because that spouse will degrade them to the point of who do you think is going to take you looking like the way you do? You're ugly. You're disgusting. You, you know, you can't cook. No, you know, you can't work on your own. You, you can't support the kids. And they stay in that situation because they don't work. That person supports that family. So that being said, a lot of times it takes upwards to seven times for that person to leave that situation. And when you are talking to these people that are in those situations, you want to look at them and go, just leave. It's easy to say that, but they can't do it. And that person will have the most beautiful things to say to them, or they will bring them jewelry and say, I'll never do it again. Or they'll bring them flowers or whatever it is they do. However, the reason they go back is whatever their reasoning is for the kids. And that's nine times out of 10. The reason if there's children involved, well, I'm doing it for the kids you know, when they get out of school or, you know, whatever it is, a lot of those relationships, when that person realizes that their spouse is leaving them, they up the ante. And regardless of how, how much the person who's being abused wants to leave, they can't. So you have those relationships that they are hell bent on, on keeping that person because it's just the type of person they are. They just keep them because they want, they, they, they need that to be in charge. They need to have that control because if you look at outside their life, sometimes they, they don't have that control in their job. They, so they come home and they need that control there. And, um, all they are cowards to have to beat on somebody or to be that type of person and pick on somebody that's weaker than themselves or degrade somebody and put somebody down so much. So that if you even look at them and say, boo, they jump. If you even reach for them, they twinge or cringe. It is extremely, extremely hard to watch, but going into looking at the national coalition against domestic violence, um, on an average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. And during one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. Again, this isn't just women. This is women and men. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence, intimate partner contact sexual violence, and or intimate partner stalking with impacts such as injury, fearfulness, PTSD, use of victim services, contraction of sexually transmitted diseases, etc. Again, you know, you, you think that partner is being true to you when they're out and they have multiple people, 
But if you personally would go out and find somebody else and try to leave, nada. That's not going to happen on them. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. This includes a range of behaviors, um, slapping, shoving, pushing, and in some cases might not be considered domestic violence. One in seven women have and one in 25 men have been injured by an intimate partner. One in 10 women have been raped by an intimate partner and data is unavailable on male victims. There used to be an old adage that men cannot be raped, uh, especially by another woman or by a woman. Men can be raped by a woman. If you don't want it, it's rape, plain and simple. It's rape. Your body reacts to touch, to stimuli. Just because it is reacting does not mean that you want it. If you are saying no, no means no. You don't have to learn no in five different languages. I used, I I mean, I know how to say no in five different languages because working with little kids for as many years as I did, I used to joke around and say, and ask them, how many ways do you want me to say no? But. No means no, period. End of story. One in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence by beatings, burning, and strangling by an intimate partner in their lifetime. One in seven women and one in uh, 18 men have been stalked by an intimate partner during their lifetime to the point in which they felt fear, very fear fearful or believe that they or someone close to them would be harmed or killed. On a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to the domestic violence hotlines nationwide. The presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%. Now these are statistics closer to the present day. I do believe it's like 2006. 17, 2018. Intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crime. And women between the ages of 18 to 24 are most commonly abused by an intimate partner. 19% of violence involves a weapon. Domestic vic- victimization is correlated with a higher risk or a higher rate of depression and suicidal behavior behavior. And, and probably the reason being is because they're beating themselves up for the fact of, I deserved it. What did I do to deserve it? You did nothing to deserve it. It's about power. That's all it's about. It's about power. And if you were feeling depressed or suicidal, make those phone calls, call somebody. You did nothing wrong. It was them. They are the ones that need to go, that need to be arrested and you need to make the phone call about you call the victim services to get the help. Only 34% of people who are injured by intimate partners receive medical care for their injuries. And the reason again is because you feel shame. 
you feel like you brought it onto yourself, please, please, please remember you did not. It is not about sex. It is about power. That is all it's about. It is not about sex. It is about power. The National Coalition Against, uh, for Violence Services in 1992, 51% of the victims of intimate violence were attacked by boyfriends or girlfriends. 34% were attacked by spouses and 15% were attacked by ex-spouses. In 1992, 54% of the general population age 12 and over were married. Now, again, remember, I was, I should have given you uh, a heads up. I went back to 1988 statistics. I tried to go back. Um, I should have stopped at the 34% of people who were injured by intimate partners received medical care for their injuries. That was the last statistic I wrote down for today's uh, statistics. Um, I went back as far as I could. It started, the statistics ranged between 1987 to 1992. So listen to this statistic. In 1992, 54% of the general population aged 12 and over were married. 12. 30% oh, uh, 30% never married, 10% were divorced, and 7% were widowed. Most violence between intimates as assault, the, inten the, the intentional infliction of injury of another person. In 1992, 81% of the violent victimization committed by spouse and ex-spouses were assaults. The uh, remainder were rapes and robberies. Now, I want you to listen to the wording. It's so much different than it, than it is for today because they include men and women. It is not just inclusive for women. Females are more likely than males to be victims of violence by intimates, which we know is not true. Annually compared to males, females experience over 10 times as many incidents of violence by an intimate. On average, each year, women experience over 572,000 violent criminalizations committed by an intimate. We, now we're going to go by race. White and black women had, had equivalent rates of violence committed by intimates and other relatives. That's for five, that's five for, um, per 1,000. For ethnic, Hispanic and non-Hispanic females had about the same rate of violence attributable to intimates. That's six for every 1,000. For age, Women aged 20 to 34 had the highest rates of violent victimization attributable to intimates. That's 16 per 1,000 per persons of any age group. For education, for education, women who graduated from college had the lowest rates of violence attributable to intimates. That's 3 per 1,000. Compared to women with less than high school education, that's 5 per 1,000. Now, it has high school grads, six per 1,000, or women with some college, six per 1,000 also. So it really didn't make any difference. Income. Women with family incomes under 9,999 had the highest rates of violence, which we know that 
it is po poverty has a lot to do with it. Attributable to an intimate 11 per 1,000 per person, and those with family incomes over 30,000 had the lowest rates, 2 per 1,000. That, that doesn't make any difference to me. It means they're just, they might not be making that call because they could just be hanging in there because, again, he's making the money and I'm staying home to take care of the family and the home. Marital status, divorced or separated women had the higher rates of violence by intimates, 16 per 1,000 persons than women who never married, 7 per 1,000, or married women, 1 1.5 per 1,000. Location of residence, women living in central cities, suburban areas, and rural locations experience similar rates of violence committed by intimates, so it really doesn't make any difference where you are. All right, and then how many female victims of intimate violence experience repeated victimization? About one in five females victimized by their spouse or ex-spouse reported to the NCVS that they had been a victim of a series of three or more assaults in the last six months that, they, that were so similar that they could not distinguish one from another. For assaults in general in 1992, fewer than one in 10 victimizations involved this type of victimization. So it just kept, it was just a cycle. It just kept going. It just seemed to be no matter what they were doing, it just kept going and going and going. Finding the differences between the two, the earlier findings from 1987 to 1992 focused on women. Men did not have suffi sufficient findings as the years went on, more men started to report the abuse. Now I added that because if you really listen to the beginning of the, uh, the, the statistics that I was giving you, it did because you had one in four women, one in nine women, uh, one in nine men, one in three women, one in four men, men started to report because they realized, yes, we do go through this gay or straight does not matter. If your spouse is doing that to you, it is abuse. It is domestic violence. Does not matter. So back to Janine Kirk. <clears throat> Janine Kirk was born in 1962. Um, but what it says about her life with her boyfriend wasn't good. And that Janine was trying to get away from him. And she left breadcrumbs which is a smart thing to do. And she did it without letting him know. On the afternoon of June 25th, 1988, the body of Janine Kirk was found covered by sand on Beach 3 at Presque Isle by some tourists. And what they found was just a hand poking out from beneath the sand. And Janine Kirk was herself an x-ray technician who worked at the local hospital which was Hammett Medical Center. She had her own apartment and had been dating a man named James Michael Fleming. Now Fleming apparently was supposed to have been meeting Kirk the day prior on the 24th of June for a date at the local amusement park. On, and on the 25th, when he hadn't heard or, or when he had heard or seen a news report that a young woman had been found dead, Fleming called the police. 
you know, naturally, because just because he hadn't heard from her, he called the police. And that's when Fleming gave the police the explanation about the missed date at the amusement park the day prior. Asked to describe the deceased woman by the police, Fleming, Fleming, who, now remember, had not seen his girlfriend the, that day, told him, or told the police, she was five foot six, about 118 pounds, and wearing an aqua-colored bikini, police said. And hours after the time Fleming said Janine disappeared, Kirk had stood in the driveway of her apartment by her car, chatting with her chatting with her landlady. It was only hours later, in the very early morning, hours of June 25th, 1988, that landlady, Alice Ganader, noticed Kirk's car gone and her apartment dark. Now, you can't take into account for all the variables if you're going to do something wrong. The only one who appeared to be there was Fleming, according to Ganader. And Ganader stated that Fleming's car sat dark and empty in front of the West 6th Street apartment building. And she also said that the security lights that usually lit the steps, doors, and hallways that led to Kirk's apartment 24-7 were off. Now, to me, that would be a huge red flag. According to witnesses, Fleming told Park Police and friends that, Kirk's, that Kirk failed to return from the beach June 24th, 1988. Now, <clears throat> she failed to return from the beach for a prearranged meet at uh, 2 p.m. at her apartment for a planned trip at Cedar Point. Now, my thing is, is did he actually know she was going to the beach that day? Did they speak to each other the night before? I mean, because this is pre-cell phone. I mean, there were cell phones, but those are the ones that were attached to the car. And I mean, they were big, they were bulky. So there wasn't anything noted about that. So, and he didn't list anything to the police saying, yes, we spoke the night before. I knew she was going to the beach, but we were going to go to Cedar Point that afternoon. And Cedar Point's in Ohio. It's a good drive, a good distance away from here. So me personally... I would not be going to the beach that morning. That's just me. I would be wanting to get a nice nap in, get my stuff together, and then head out to Cedar Point. Then after repeatedly shopping or stopping at her apartment, meaning Kirk's, that afternoon, then driving by it every two hours throughout the early morning of June 25th, Fleming said he could not find her, according to the statement by, taken by Prescott State Park Ranger Richard F Fisher. So their date was the 24th, and because she missed one date, he is, like, stalking her. But he doesn't call any of her friends, and he doesn't call her family. Okay. So... But that conflicted with what Ganader, who lived near Kirk, and another woman who lived in Kirk's building, both say they saw Kirk the afternoon of the 24th at her, at her West 6th Street apartment, and both said they saw Fleming's empty car parked outside the dark building early on June 25th. But here's my question. Where was Kirk's car found? Was it found at Presque Isle? 
And if it was, what position was the seat found? Because I looked up her address. Her address is actually listed in here and is actually not that far from Presque Isle. It, Sixth Street actually cuts straight across from where you can get on to, <clears throat> turn on to, for, to turn into the uh, park. So, and she was found at Beach 3. And Beach 3 is only a couple entrances in. And nobody is there to stop you from heading in. There's just a notice saying that the beach doesn't open until, you know, <clears throat> sun, sunrise. It's open from sunrise to sunset. And, and I used to go in there first thing in the morning because you go in there and there's a lot of people that um, dig for beach glass. And I gone in there and I found somebody sleeping on the beach and it was a kid that was, you know, backpacking it through um, the U.S. He was actually, I want to say from the U.K. I felt super sorry for this kid. And I had brought sandwiches for myself and I gave him a sandwich. You know, it, it was like mom instinct. This kid was maybe 18. And I'm like, I looked at him and I was like, call your mom. And I gave him a sandwich. So, but this is, he slept all night on the beach. There was no one there to kick him off the beach. So, this guy could easily drive her car in, take her body out to the beach, cover her up because she was found near the water's edge and walk back out and walk back to the apartment to get his car. So th those are my questions. I mean, you could easily look it up and see what I'm talking about. And, or anybody that lives here knows that 6th Street cuts right across to Peninsula Drive. And I mean, it's just boop, 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 done. So anyways, back to, to, back to this here. With no hard evidence, no forensic evidence, because when, the, when they found the body, there was tourists that found the body, you know, which is not a good thing. Today's day and age, it would be a good thing because there's a lot of freaks out here that love this kind of stuff. And yes, I am a freak too. <clears throat> so, um, they removed the body without the forensic team coming out and getting that evidence. The findings, the original ones from the, from the autopsy, indicated that Kirk had been forci forcibly drowned. That finding was later dismissed. And her body was found, like I said, near the water's edge, leading officials to believe someone had drowned Kirk by force. Because of this evidence, prosecutors would not successfully charge Fleming for 15 years. Okay, so for 15 years, in those 15 years, Fleming became a husband and a father and a respectable member of society. However, that doesn't make up for the fact if you've murdered someone. In July of 2003, a seven-woman, five-man panel found Fleming, Kirk's boyfriend, guilty of involuntary man, uh, manslaughter. With the verdict, the jurors came about 2.15 p.m., just hours after jurors told the judge they were deadlocked. And apparently one juror said that he would not even deliberate the case at all. So I didn't even think you could do that. I thought you would say that at first. That way you get kicked off the jur jury pool because you'd raise your hand and say, I can't be partial, unpartial. That's just me personally, because this 
Guy Fleming apparently was a very upstanding citizen. He was a, a store manager at a lo local grocery store. People, A lot of people knew him. But like I said, that doesn't make up for the fact if you've murdered someone. He said he would not deliberate the case at all. The jury found that Fleming, 42, exercised gross negligence or recklessness and unintentionally killed Kirk during an argument in June 1988. It rejected the idea that Fleming acted with malice when he killed Kirk, which is required for a third-degree murder conviction. The conviction for involuntary manslaughter, a first-degree misdemeanor, carries a max sentence of two and one-half to five years. So they gave him the minimum sentence. So basically, he's out already. District Attorney Brad Falk, relying solely on circumstantial evidence, all of it collected in the years immediately after this discovery of Kirk's body on June 25, 1988, was able to convince a jury that Fleming killed Kirk. He did it without ever fully articulating exactly how, when, or where he believed the killing occurred. Me personally, I think he did it at the apartment. He went over, he confronted her because she ditched him for a date, he got pissed off, and he said, fuck it, and he hit her hard, and then he realized what the hell he did and was like, oh, fuck, I done fucked up. What the hell am I going to do? You know what? I'm going to take her to the beach. Maybe the, maybe the waves will drag her out. That's what he thought he would do. And yet he didn't. And he took her car, put her body in it. Boom. That's what he did. You know, I mean... That's, that's the only viable choice because if he had left her at the house, it would have been an easy, easy choice. But here's where he screwed up. He's the one who frantically called the police. He thought if he called the police, quote unquote, looking for her, he would seem like the concerned boyfriend. But he's the one who said, this is what she's wearing when he already had told them, I haven't seen her yet. Well, how would you know what she's wearing? You wouldn't know what she's wearing. Oh my God, people are so dumb. Folk argued to the jury that Fleming told authorities Kirk left for the beach on June 24th and failed to meet him for a date later that afternoon. He said he searched for her, he searched her apartment and the area for her but did not see her again before her body was found on a Presque Isle beach just before 3 p.m. on June 25th. The prosecution, yeah, words are hard. The prosecution suggested through the evidence that Kirk possibly had angered Fleming by standing him up. Okay. And Fleming returned to her apartment early the morning of June 25th and beat her to death. You know, because that's what we do when we're angry about something. We can't use our words and just say, you know what? You don't want to date me. Fine. I'll go and be with someone else. You don't want to be with me. Fine. You know, because, hey, that's the adult thing to do. But apparently people don't know how to use their words. You know, I only use my words, you know, when I'm trying to talk and I can't. Um, folk pointed out the inconsistencies in Fleming's account to 
of his movements on the 24th, and he argued his behavior indicated Fleming manufactured evidence to support his story. You know, the whole showing up at the apartment, going, doing the drive-bys and crap. Among the strongest evidence to support his story was a police report that indicated Fleming knew the location of Kirk's body and what she was wearing before that information had been made public. Also key were Kirk's own words. Ha <laughs> ha. In journal writing slash entries slash stories, she told friends and her therapist, remember fellas, women have those things and ladies, you need to make sure that you hide them well. Jurors learned Fleming had beaten Kirk before. First time a man lays a hand on you, you call the police, you get his ass, the bum fucked up out. You don't take him back. There's no reason to lay a hand on anybody. There is none. Period. She told her landlady, Alice Midge Ganader, that if anything ever happened to her, people would know Fleming had done it. Now, this does not sound like a gone, go, gone girl episode because, hey, they found the body. But look, she's made several entries. She's told her therapist that he's laid hands on her. She's told her landlady, look, he's been laying his hands on me. If anything ever happens to me, it's this SOB. And look, her body turned up. Guess who they're going to go to? They know Fleming would have done it because of the entries in her journal. Uh, they test, uh, testified by Ganader in court. Folk stared long and hard in, in Fleming's direction after the verdict was read. When court recessed, he turned and hugged the arresting officers, state troopers Dana Anderson and Candy Hendricks. I've never, uh, I've never taken any pleasure in anything like this, he said. But I'm elated that the family has closure, Falk said. Kirk's writings were strong evidence, but he, but he said the, in def the defense attacked the police investigation at trial. Fleming's lawyer, Tim Lucas, repeatedly recalled that park rangers <clears throat> had moved Kirk's body before the scene could be processed for trace evidence. Remember, I said that at the beginning. And he noted that records of Fleming's statements to police were never preserved on audio or videotape. Now, why that was done, I have no idea. And again, like I said, there wasn't a whole lot that you could find. And there were some newspaper clippings. And, and, I'll, and I will uh, put my sources online. Um, I'm a little bit behind on some of that stuff because of um, the holidays, uh, moving my information over to um, the new computer. I just got my Facebook up onto this site and um, whatnot. So I will have that. I, I couldn't even find a picture. I found a picture of her sister who passed away, but they had nothing about this young lady. You would have thought that they would have had postings and stuff like that. They just had a picture of her, um, her gravestone. That was it. Folk defended the investigation. Uh, there was good, hard police work for a number of years. He said they didn't give up. Uh, Fleming had married, like I said, father of one, when he left the uh, when he left the court, courthouse without comment, his wife, whose name was Becky, wept quietly after the verdict was read. Uh, he had supporters, like I said, that filled the courthouse. 
throughout the trial. And then Fleming, like I said, he was a Mill Creek Township resident and a grocery store manager who had been free since the posting of 10% of a $100,000 bail three years prior. The judge, Fred P. Anthony, said Fleming could remain free on bond until sentencing in September 10th of 2003. This guy beat and murdered someone, but hey, just because you're a great upstanding guy and you posted bail, you know what? Gee whiz, golly, golly gosh darn, you know what? You're such a nice guy. We're going to let you free on bail. He ended up receiving the maximum sentence. Five years. You know what? I, 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 that part just made me sick. And what it was found, like I said, they had two autopsies. In the second one, it was found that Kirk uh, had been beaten in the head and neck and possibly by a close fist. And this was testified by the forensic pathologist, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, um, who was at the time known as the coroner to the stars. This guy, he had performed or had supervised autopsies on Marilyn Monroe, Natalie Wood, and Robert F. Kennedy, and some other well-known names. Now, this was back in 2003, and I had to keep reminding myself when I read Marilyn Monroe and Natalie Wood and Robert F. Kennedy, I was like, how old is this guy? Because again, it's 2020. Is this guy even still around? So, you know, it's just one of those things. But... I was reading the article from 2003. The autopsy was done two years after her death. So it was done in 1990. So this guy also said that it was unlikely that Kirk was drowned. The former Erie County coroner, uh, Merle Wood, initially determined that Kirk had died from forcible drowning, citing that sand had been found in her lungs and bruising on her face, neck, and two shallow stab wounds on her neck. And like I said, Noguchi said that, um, that oh, Noguchi did the autopsy two years after Kirk's body was discovered. He examined it and found the lungs were not heavy and dark, which I guess is a sign of drowning. I've never seen a body that's drowned I'm told that is not a very pretty sight, but there was not a note in any of the, in any of the articles on what prompted the second autopsy. While Kirk suffered two shallow stab wounds, Noguchi said force on her spinal cord at the nape of her neck caused her sudden death. Have deep bleeding on the side of her face, head, and neck suggested she, she was struck repeatedly. When asked about the sand, Noguchi said it could have been deposited by the waves. Now, remember, I said that he he could have been hoping that the waves would have taken the body out because of uh, because of those waves can get pretty strong. Now, in June, I don't see it being that strong unless there's a storm coming in. But in November, December time frame, different story. But they asked Noguchi about the sand, and he said, it, like I said, it could have been deposited by the, uh, the waves. But now here's what I found interesting about the trial in general. 
And remember, I said that Erie's a small town. Erie's also considered the third largest city in Pennsylvania. In 2003, the jury selection was set to begin when a sixth judge had recused herself, and that was Stephanie Dmitrievich. She recused herself when she had learned a fellow judge would be asked to testify why he consulted a psychic in the case, and that was the President Judge William Cunningham. He had, he had, he would be testifying why he consulted a psychic in the case when he was the district attorney. And that, that Friday that that was going on, matters were further complicated when a judge moved the case to an adjacent county to decide if it should go to trial at all. And then district Attorney Brad Falk vowed to settle the case before taking office into in 2000. So you have a district attorney that's coming into office and he probably had this in the back of his mind or he was or he was elected into office vowing he was going to clear these cold cases and you have these judges that have to be, you know, very impartial and in comes this this case and this uh Dmitrievich is looking at it going, crap, I can't, I can't oversee this case. All right, I have to recuse myself because I have a fellow judge that is going to testify. I can't, you know, can I be impartial? Can I not be impartial? All right, I, I can't be impartial. I have to recuse myself. So then another judge goes, okay, you know what? We're just going to kick it to another county so that county can oversee it. They don't know what is going on up here except for what's in the paper, possibly, who knows. But here's the other thing. That judge can kick it back up to Erie County because they can say, no, we don't want any part of this crap. This is your case. You deal with it. We don't want any part of it. So back to Mr. Folk. He vowed to settle the case before taking office in 2000, and he arrested Fleming that that August of 2000. All right. And the witnesses that were included in that, in the case caseload was, um, an FBI profiler from, uh, Quantico, Virginia and, um, Mr. Noguchi, which, which would have been very highly profiled in this area because area is a small town. Even before the autopsy investigator zeroed in on Fleming, um, attorney uh, Tim Lucas was seeking to, um, I'm seeking to have the homicide charges against Fleming thrown out. <clears throat> there was no new evidence here, just new experts, he said. Well, okay, yes, there was no new evidence, just new experts, but they were experts in their field and Noguchi did do another autopsy and he relooked at Kirk's body and what his finding said was she didn't drown. She was murdered. She was, she was killed by being hit in the head and face and stabbed in the neck. So there actually was new evidence. There is an advantage in that people involved in the initial of Initial investigation are gone and others have moved on and memories have faded. 
Crawford County Judge Gordon Miller had been appointed to decide whether the case had been prejudiced by time and could throw out the homicide charges, said Judge John A. Boza, who chose Miller. Or, like I said earlier, Miller could send the case back to Erie, let Cunningham, a potential witness in the trial, decide it. So can you imagine having the judge, who is also a potential witness, presiding over the trial? I mean, that would have been complete headline news up here. Lucas said his client tried to help investigators find the killer quickly when he realized it might be his girlfriend on the beach. He's stuck himself right in the investigation as soon as possible. It was, mm, when he said that he saw a report on the news, at the time, there was only one TV station in the area. And at that time, they even had that TV reporter testify. She never stated what color bikini that Kirk wore because they kept that information back. So how would he have known that it was her? That was what was in the police report. That's what he told the police officers. That's what they wrote down. But Lucas was saying, well, why didn't you have it on record in video and in and on rec uh, recorded? You just you could have just wrote that in your notes. Yes, he could have, but that that why would they have written it down? I mean, otherwise, I don't know. <sighs> this now this is from Lucas. This was a bad case from the beginning, and Jamie and Jamie tried to do what he could to cooperate. He said, "In all this time, nothing has changed. No hard evidence. No forensic evidence. It's the same thing police were looking at in 1988." And then, but like I said, how do you change what he said from the beginning? She wasn't even missing 24 hours. And he's calling, stating where she was supposed to be at, which was the beach, what she was wearing exactly. And the fact that, you know, that he's been looking for her. Okay, but he wasn't calling in a missing persons report. He was stating that the news stated this, and the news anchor said, no, that's not what I said. I never stated that. And even the police said, no, that's information that we held back. There's no way he would have known that. And he stated that the last time he saw her was the afternoon of the 24th in her driveway, speaking to her landlady. And the landlady said, no, we saw her late in the afternoon. He, was, he wasn't there at that time, but we hours of the early morning of the 25th, her security lights that are normally on 24 seven go dark. Her apartment lights are out, but his car is there, which is not normal. So, you know, two plus two makes four, but if you're adding what he says, it's making seven. You know, so he's not adding up, his, his information's not adding up whatsoever. And that's what made the police suspicious. Did all their evidence come together 
the way it should have? No. Did they make mistakes? Yes. Does it happen? Yes. However, do I think they got the right person? Absolutely. At this point in time, that is my story. I really hope that Janine is at peace. I hope that Mr. Fleming was did his time in in prison. Um, it's actually I, uh, ironic that I did this story today. I read a story this morning um, in the online news. Yesterday, there was a body found at Presque Isle on the beach, floating. So, I shouldn't say floating. I should say covered by sand. So, the irony of that and myself doing this story is very interesting. Um, and it made me think of this instantly as I was reading it. Uh, because I was thinking about how much time he had done in prison. And to follow up, I just want to reiterate, thank you guys again for listening to my podcast. I really hope you guys are enjoying it as much as I am enjoying doing the research and doing the stories. I have a couple more stories. My next one is going to be about a hitman. That is going to be very interesting. Hopefully I can get that started this afternoon and get that up and out for tomorrow. And please don't forget, go to the websites, uh, podbean.com, Facebook, Spotify, Twitter. And if you have, if you have, if you would like to leave me any messages, please do so. And I really, 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 really appreciate all, all my listeners, please have a very, 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 very happy new year. And please be safe out there. This is Kathy signing off.